This is the Work Smart Hypnosis Podcast, session number 36, part one with Ross Jeffries. Welcome to the Work Smart Hypnosis Podcast with Jason Lynette, your professional resource for hypnosis training and outstanding business success. Here's your host, Jason Lynette. Welcome back. It's Jason Lynette here. Excited to jump into part one of this series with Ross Jeffries. You know what? I'm going to be blunt here. Uh, I'm more excited for you to hear part two of this, which is going to come to you in a couple of weeks. Uh, in part one, it's Ross and I just catching up. He's someone who actually reached out to me a couple of months back as this podcast was maybe a dozen or so sessions in. I forget the history here, if it was a Facebook message or I believe it was a phone call. Someone who I'd never had any contact with reaching out to me. I definitely... Well, definitely knew who he was, but was a nice surprise to meet by phone. And then in a recent visit out to Las Vegas, we both happened to be out there at the same time and got together for dinner. For those of you that may know of his history, you're going to hear a very different side of him. For those of you who don't, a simple Google search will tell you the history. But more specifically now, as he references here... Uh, a style of work that's been evolving over the years and just a focus that's been shifting. The new website, RossJeffriesLive.com, you can learn more over there. Past appearances you'll see featured there from CNN, from Fox, from NBC, Rolling Stone, of course, the Playboy magazine. And there's a recent CNN interview that he's been uh, chatting about online, which if that appears, we're going to put that up in the show notes as well. I'm going to jump right into this session. Just a quick heads up. I'll phrase it this way. There's some light language in this recording. Nothing too vulgar, of course, just conversational. But I do like to give you the heads up in case you're listening out loud in a public place. This is a fascinating series here with Ross Jeffries, part one, starting right now. Part two, where he flips the tables and, well, I believe interviews me the way it ended up working out. That's going to come at you in a couple of weeks. Here we go. You know, I've been becoming more and more devoted to my healing practice because ultimately what I see myself as doing in my later years, I'm 56, is devoting myself to teaching people how to heal. Now, right now, the modalities I use are hypnosis, mindful meditation, which I've found it's interesting. And I want to have this discussion here on this podcast about how they're similar and different and what the intersection between the two of them is. So I've been looking into those. Uh, no, I've been working with those for some time. NLP, but really my NLP is not traditional NLP. It's more about looking at people's language and then by how they speak, pointing out to them how they're thingifying their world, how they're turning their world into a thing. Uh, so um, I would like if you can keep track of these three topics, then we can unpack all of them. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. But the fourth thing I've pretty recently discovered is something called trauma release exercises, which I believe uh, has the potential to surpass all of these other modalities and actually physically healing the fight, flight and freeze modalities that happen to people who are traumatized. Uh, I am going to take trainings and make this one of the major pieces of my life's work. I found it as I look at it to have the potential to be more effective than any of these other modalities. And I'd really like to speak on it and tell you just my initial experiences. I'm just beginning to do it. 
Yeah, that's fascinating. And and especially too, I mean, it's that knowledge of taking the scope of everything that we have and packing it together in our own unique ways. And specifically, let, let's spend some time on that concept of just thingifying the world around us that yeah. as we look at the way that we begin to create our understanding of the world, it's that phrase that for many of us as we work with clients, figuring out that sometimes the client's language is, well, most of the time, the client's language is telling us everything we need to know to give us that next step to help to unpack it and help to rebuild that client. And recently, I don't know if you've heard of clean communication. Have you heard of it? Yes. I had a session with a woman who's like the big mucky muck, and she had me in a profound conversational trance. I need a few more sessions with her. I walked around for like two days feeling like something had shifted inside of me more effective than any hypnosis. Uh, I, I have a hypnotherapist who's worked with me for a while. She referred me out to deal with some of my own trauma issues. And I want to say that uh, based on what I've seen from Dr. Bricelli, who created these trauma release exercises, I think virtually the entire society is either experiencing chronic trauma or acute trauma. But let's get back to your question. Please repeat it. <laughs> yeah, let's chat a little bit first of all in that concept of just thingifying our That's, language and how we... Give me an example. So when I do teach my um, pickup, et cetera, seminars, guys will say to me, you know, I want more confidence with women. That tells me that they're viewing confidence as a thing or a trait that they either have or they don't. So my response used to be, okay, let me go up to my room. I have a 10-liter jar of confidence fluid. We'll drill a hole in your head, and it's $5,000 for a liter, and I'll pour it at the top of your head. So, And often when I work with people, their language reveals to me where they're actually stuck, the kind of questions they ask, and where they have their sense of impossibility. When they say something like, I can't approach women, the interesting thing to me is, first of all, it, it sounds like it's just a limitation on their skill, but when they identify it with I, essentially they're making it part of their identity. And when you make it part of your identity, you're then implying or buying into the implication that it's not changeable. Uh, you know, we know identities are the idea of a, a fixed identity. We know it's people who do deep trance that that's not really so anyway. But that being the case, and they're also, and here's the really key thing, they're not specifying as to time, when do they have the problem? How long have they had it? If you make a statement like, I have difficulty meeting women, or I can't meet women, is that a statement about your past? Is it an observation of your present? Is it a commitment to your future? And as you know, when the unconscious mind encounters ambiguity, it searches for all possible meanings and applies all of them. So I teach my students to, first of all, disidentify with the problem and then limit it in time. So to say, up until now, I did not have the skill set to meet women. That right away begins to create a wedge into the problem. Now, it's certainly not all you need. You also need to begin to give them the skills, et cetera, et cetera. But it's a start. Another example would be I have students say to me, you know, I can approach the sevens or eights, but I can't get the nines and tens. And my statement is, has it ever occurred to you there's no such thing as a 9 or a 10? There's only the level of sexual excitement you feel in your body. Once they accept that, I can show them how to ground into that and do something with it. But as long as they see it as a thing outside of themselves, they're not in contact with what's going on inside of them. And what you can't be in contact with, you have no power to shift and change. What you can be in contact with, then at least you have the potential 
to shift and change. You still may not be able to do it, but at least it opens up the possibility. I'm sure that makes sense to you. And the other thing is you're very experienced. You know, when the clients come in, their language (laughs) doesn't necessarily reflect what's actually going on. It just gives you their metaphor for what's going on. Right. And uh, specifically, you made that transition of chatting about that in terms of working with a client for a change process. It's one of those bits about just how universal this information is that the the concepts for producing a sale, the concepts for producing a change, the concepts for building that relationship, building that connection. So specifically here, you know, we can break it down to be that nominalization pattern to go, they've turned this thing into something. And as soon as they start to understand the structure of that something being several parts that are moving and no longer just static and stuck, even that alone is going to change the perception of the issue. Yes. And another thing I'll point out is to listen to the metaphor clients use. I had a client call me. He said, you know, I went out, I try to use your stuff, but I went to the mall and I hit a wall. (laughs) I said, oh my God, did you break some bones? Did you call the paramedics? He said, no, 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 that kind of, not that kind of wall. I said, well, was the wall made of jello? So if it was made of jello, did you eat any of it? He said, no, I don't literally mean a wall. I meant I felt stuck. Aha. So, you know, their metaphors are very interesting. If they give me a metaphor like, oh, I hit a wall, I'll go, okay. If he actually really physically did hit a wall, what are some of the things that would have happened? And I feed that back to them and then they have to laugh at it. Another thing I'll do is with clients who are really seriously damaged and they think it's about them, I give assignments. And the purpose of the assignment is to begin to externalize the problem. So by observing it or putting it onto other people, they can see it's not who they are. It's bad habits. Shall I share an example? Yeah, go for it. I had a client who was really, really screwed up. And I said, look, I'm going to give you an assignment. I want you to go to the center of town or somewhere where there's a lot of people. And I want you to look and look and see until you find a person who you you feel is a guy who's got it all, a guy who looks like he's successful with women, he's good looking, he walks confidently, he looks like he has lots of money. And I want you to write down a few sentences about him. And then I want you to write down, what if you were to take all those shitty beliefs and all that shitty programming you've got in your head and stick it into his head and this other person for three months, runs your shitty program in in his head. I want you to write down some notes about how he'd feel about himself, what his life would look like if he took your programming and put it in his head. So he did the assignment. He brought it back into this long thing. Now, that was the start of getting a wedge into his experience of disidentifying with the problem. Milton Erickson would use this strategy to get the client to externalize the problem so they begin to disidentify with it. And now my interest, you know, the thing with hypnosis is, I think, and mindfulness, to some extent, they're a top down. They're changing from the top down. But I've found with some people, they're so fucked up neurologically that you need to get a somatic kind of thing and, and begin to change their neurology and change from the bottom up. Yeah, absolutely. And specifically, that transitions us right over to uh, the concept of this combination of mindfulness and hypnosis. Yeah, and I'd point out that oftentimes if the theme pops up of a client asking in my office about, you know, let's say the difference between meditation and hypnosis, that it's going to vary based on the style of meditation for one. But specifically, I think 
if pulling in one of these modalities that's a perfect fit, it's that of mindfulness. And there's so much amazing research that backs it up in terms of the efficacy of it, what can be done with it. And I'd share with you just simply my perspective of it to point out with a client that if we're dealing with emotions, if we're dealing with challenges, things such as stress, anger, frustration, guilt, these are all feelings that are in that position looking backwards at the past. If we're working with fears, apprehensions, worries, or anxieties, these are feelings looking towards the future. But to simply associate them into this moment right now, as you're aware of the shoes on your feet, as you're aware of the clock ticking in this room, as you're mindful of this specific moment, those things can't exist right now. And just opening up that door that they really do have much more control over how they feel than they thought possible. I think there's a difference here. Yes. The kind of meditation I do, Vipassana, is utterly about releasing control. Mm -hmm. So there are different, my teacher Shinzen Young teaches different ways to focus, but Remember, mindfulness is not just about paying attention. It's paying attention with sensory clarity so you know exactly what's going on. And then it's equanimity, allowing the flow of sensation to occur without trying to fight it and without trying to recreate it or change it. Now, you can also cultivate positive feelings. This is the Buddhist practice of metta. So I think one of the differences is often meditation can have an outward focus. What I find most comforting is to focus extremely. Shinzen calls it anchoring out, to focus on the feeling of my bottom, on the cushion, and then to anchor out and listen to external sound and find those moments when sound and the feeling and my physical sensation merge into one and when they disappear. And also when thought comes up, not to try to change it, but to notice the moment the thought disappears. Because that moment of gone has a different kind of piece to it. So I really think they're working in, in a different level. Uh, Vipassana does not attempt to program in new behaviors. You know, yes, the first few months you're sitting, you can absolutely create a container of peace and then deal with other things. But I think one of the key distinctions is, first of all, there may be different brainwave patterns. I don't know. I know my teacher and his senior students participated in some medical studies to look to see what was going on with their brainwave patterns. And getting into the science of it, I know Ernie Rossi wrote a book on gene expression, on psychobiology of mind-body healing, and that there's gene expression that takes place when you do trance. I don't know what kind of gene expression, if at all, takes place through mindfulness. But I think it's a different approach. Now, it's not to say they can't be complementary, but I think it, it, it truly is a different approach. And the end goal of mindfulness as I see it, is not necessarily to program in new behaviors. They come as a result of being less driven and being less fixated. But I think it's to address the big S. There, you know, I think hypnosis addresses the suffering of life with a small S. Someone has a headache. Someone has a phobia. Someone believes they can't achieve a goal. It's extremely worthwhile. But it doesn't address the big S, the suffering that's inherently part of life, that Things are impermanent, that we're going to lose things, that things change, that we don't want to change, that we get pleasure and we tighten around it so it doesn't bring satisfaction. Vipassana addresses that. And I've seen people who are really driven to achieve their goals, but then when their goals, they reach them, it destroys them. They turn manic or psychotic. So I think Vipassana is a good, <laughs> it's a good way to begin to chip away at that drivenness and that fixation 
and the poisons that Buddhist psychology talks about the kleshas, the poisons, greed, anger, hate, drivenness, fixation, craving, aversion. Sure, hypnosis will address cravings like cravings for a cigarette. It'll address aversions when it deals with a phobia, but it doesn't address the overall problem. What are you going to do about all cravings? What are you going to do about all aversions? What, not just what are you going to do about this fear, but what are you going to do about all fear? It's a much longer process and a practice. Now, they're both very, very valuable, but I think they're, they're different. Where they intersect, of course, is their altered states of consciousness. Although, let me jump in there for a second. Would you say that it's a bit of a generalization to say that hypnosis doesn't do that, where hypnosis is the tool, but let's say a practitioner with skills in both of these modalities, bringing in the themes, bringing in the concepts, could then do that in hypnosis? As a concept, yes, but there you go. conceptually, yes. But when you meditation, I think literally rewires the neurologies. Uh, my teacher would explain it like this: that on a subtle level, we as soon as pleasure arrives, arise, we grasp around it. It's it's evolution. As soon as pain occurs, we tighten against it. It's why hardwired into the neurology. And I don't think hypnosis really addresses the craving with a big C and the aversion with a big A. Mm. I don't think hypnosis itself can make people more compassionate and more wise. Uh, perhaps it can. I don't know if anyone's ever come to you and said, you know, Jason, I want to be more compassionate with people in my life. I want to be wiser. Someone came to you and said, I would like to be wiser. Uh, what do you do? I can tell you this. And maybe this is due to my own personality quirks and disturbances. And we all, <laughs> I would consider myself a wounded healer and a clown, uh, a trickster and a sorcerer. The example of a client coming in specifically and just saying, I'd like to be more compassionate. I'd like to be more wise that we'd be working on a very sort of a surface level issue for something that needs to be much more deep surface yeah. in terms of what they're consciously and unconsciously becoming aware of in the world around them. Yes, and I think that's a fin that vipassana is a terrific tool for doing that. Now, if someone came to me and said, you know, I'm ha I don't think vipassana is a good tool for relieving trauma. It just takes too long, and it's not a good tool for relieving a specific compulsion. If you have a compulsion like overeating, it's a lot of work to deal with that. I would much rather turn to something either like hypnosis or this uh, trauma release exercise modality. Because generally speaking, people are far more traumatized. And I don't just mean the mental imagery, the emotions. I mean the body itself. This has to do with fight, flight, and freeze. That many people, when they live in a, a emotionally abusive environment, emotionally empty environment, or they have an alcoholic parent or whatever it is, they develop a freeze response. They just numb out to all emotions or... They come out when they come out of freeze, they go into rage or they go into crazy behavior. People often this happens with veterans. They come home. They've been severely traumatized. So if you're in a situation where your adrenaline is constantly running, then your sympathetic nervous system is on overdrive and your parasympathetic nervous system can also get worn out because you're just trying to calm yourself down. That stuff, when you're in a situation where you're constantly on alert or you have to fight, you can't fight and you can't flee because you're trapped, you're pinned down and or you feel emotionally you're pinned down or what you're facing is too big. People have been in a fire and they don't know what to do. They freeze. That is stuck in the neurology from the ground up. 
And the guy, David Bercelli, I'm deeply impressed by TRE as a, as a means of releasing that stuff that's actually stored in the body. It's stored in the neurology, and it's got to go all the way down to the brainstem. Through doing these exercises, he creates neurogenic tremors. They're tremors that are coming from the brainstem. And I've talked to people who said, look, three, four, five months of doing this, my PTSD is gone. Where other modalities don't work. Now, here's what's interesting to me, and I asked Dr. Bricelli this. How do you explain the fact that other modalities work? Some people can do EMDR, and it works. He said, you know, I really don't know. Maybe somehow it's addressing, um, it's disconnecting the what's going on in the body from the story. He didn't know. I find as a healer, it's fascinating how all kinds of modalities can work. Yeah, it's a matter of the practitioner putting in the right tools at the right time. And just it's that interaction as well. I'd be curious to ask you a question from an outside perspective for a moment, though. Sure. Would you say this has been an evolution of all the work that you've done coming up to this point now? Is this a side that's always been there that we're hearing a very different side, perhaps, that I'm, I'm loving here? Well, it's always been there, but I had my own disturbances, so I was not able mm. to develop it to the point where I'd like to. And so, you know, what happened to me is I went through, some, I don't know what triggered the trauma. I went through two and a half years of not sleeping and had, you know, I don't like to call it a nervous breakdown, but a nervous breakthrough. And I began to look at these various different things. And now I'm far, far from the path of being healed. But I think the, the missing link will be this trauma release stuff. Many people have said that it is. So it evolved from that. And also, you know, as you get older, you can think is, do I want to continue doing what I was doing? Yeah, that for the most part, your your focus has been shifting in recent years, hasn't it? Yes. And I'm also teaching persuasion courses. I actually have a free persuasion course if you're interested in that. If you go to rossjefferieslive.com slash course, that's rossjefferieslive.com slash course, you can pick that up. But also, if you're interested, just interested in having me on your podcast or speak to your group or, or at your event, just go to rossjeffreyslive.com, uh, J-E-F-F-R-I-E-S. If you go to rossjeffreyslive.com, that will tell you about how to book me as a speaker. And if you go to rossjeffreyslive.com slash course, you can get the free video. It's a video training on persuasion. You can do both. Thanks for listening to the Work Smart Hypnosis Podcast at WorkSmartHypnosis.com. Hey, it's Jason Lynette with one last quick thing. Imagine yourself running an even better hypnosis business just in the next 10 days. Head over to WorkSmartHypnosis.com and check out the 10-Day Hypnosis Business Challenge. It's 10 days of emails, 10 days of videos, 10 days of specific action steps with tested techniques to help you to grow your hypnosis business. Check that out today.